Well, I invite you to turn with me now to the book of Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. We're going to continue through chapter 1. We're going to read verses 6 to 24. We covered 6 to 10 last time, so we're going to actually finish up the chapter today, Lord willing, uh, verses 11 through to the end of the chapter. But we will begin reading again in verse 6, just to keep in mind what we looked at last time. So Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. As we have noted previously, as we've been working through the book of Galatians, uh, there was a dispute in these Galatian churches over the nature of the gospel. What is the gospel? And part of the dispute... Part of the issue was the question of authority. Uh, The Judaizers, Paul's opponents, they believed that one needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. Uh, They were making circumcision, this ceremonial law, they were making circumcision part of the instrument by which believers received salvation from the Lord. Whereas Paul was saying, no, that is not the case. We are justified before God, therefore we are saved by grace alone, and that is received by faith alone, not through any works of our, of our own, like circumcision or any other. That was really the debate. 
But behind that debate was this question of authority. The Judaizers, they disparaged Paul's claim of apostleship. The Judaizers evidently claimed a pedigree that went through Jerusalem. So they would say something to the effect of, we are from Jerusalem, therefore our message is what ought to be believed. We're the ones with the correct message. We're here from Jerusalem. Paul, on the other hand, was not. In their minds, Paul was a bit of a rogue. He didn't, he didn't get sent out by the Jerusalem church. Uh, we come from where the disciples of Jesus were, where Jesus himself uh, was crucified and, and rose from the dead. Uh, Paul, on the other hand, is not really connected to the Jerusalem apostles at all. And so some, I think we can see how that kind of argument could possibly be persuasive. Even if initially you thought, you know, I don't really like this talk of being circumcised, which I would just assume people did uh, not necessarily receive that with great ease. Uh, But even if they didn't really like that, but if the argument was, um, well, we claim a higher authority than Paul, we are the correct authority over Paul, then someone might think, well, if that is, if they are really more authoritative than Paul, then we really should believe them. If this is what is coming from Jerusalem, maybe, maybe we should do this. And Paul responds to all of this in in this letter to the Galatians. And in his response, what he does is he shows that his gospel and, and his apostleship, his authority as an apostle, a messenger of Jesus Christ, and the message he brings as an apostle, that this is ultimately from God himself. That the message he proclaims, the gospel that he proclaims, is really God's gospel ultimately. So... If you want to have this argument, this talk about authority, well, here it is. Paul's saying, my gospel comes directly from the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God the Father. So you, you, you claim Jerusalem, fine, uh, but my gospel actually comes very directly from the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father. And as he demonstrates this, as he gives this account, which we just read, we also see in these verses the power of God to save that resides in this gospel message that's proclaimed. As Paul was confronted by Christ, this former blasphemer, this persecutor of the church, was radically converted to Christ. And he went and joined the other side. He became actually a champion for the cause of Christ an apostle to the Gentiles. He went on to receive all kinds of persecution aimed at him. And so we see in these verses here that the one gospel message is God's gospel. The true gospel is God's gospel, and it alone has the power to save. Throughout history, Christians have been tempted to despair Tempted to despair the gospel. To think perhaps, to be tempted to think that it is not enough. That we need to add things to it or perhaps adapt it to fit our present times. It's one of the remarkable things about reading biographies of men and women throughout church history. And and those who remain faithful to the scriptures and faithful to the gospel. Is that it seems continually, continually the church has faced this temptation to drift away from the gospel, this temptation 
uh, to, to, to change it, to say, well, these are different times now. Maybe that worked in former days, but this is very different now. There are also temptations to have that gospel message of the Lord Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection take a back seat. Take a back seat to other matters that seem maybe more pressing and maybe more important. And the church can drift from its mission of proclaiming Christ and his death and resurrection for sinners into other areas, into other things, and lose focus in that way. And so as we've been seeing, we must go ultimately to the author of the gospel to get it straight. And we must also remember that there is great hope in proclaiming this simple message, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And so we see in this text both the authority behind the gospel that is God, and we also see the power of this gospel to save. You remember from last week, the Galatians were moving on from this to another gospel that Paul said was no gospel at all. There was no good news in what they were proclaiming, and there was no power of God to save within that. And so as Paul gets into this discussion about the authority behind his message, he also reveals to us the power that is within that message as he talks about his own life and conversion to Christ. And so let's begin by looking at the ultimate authority in defining the gospel. As I said, in Galatia, the dispute that was behind the dispute was this question of authority. So they're debating what is the gospel, how is somebody saved? But in order to settle that and to find the answer to that, there needs to be some understanding of what authority stands behind that. What are we going to appeal to in order to resolve this dispute? The Judaizers say one thing, Paul is saying another. How do we settle this matter? Paul has already said at the outset of the letter in verse 1 that his apostleship was not from men nor through man, but through Christ. And when we looked at that a few weeks ago, we saw that this is communicating that Paul's authority and his message are not ultimately of human origin. And this is now precisely what he expands upon in verse 11. So after rebuking the Galatians for their abandonment of the gospel and, and pronouncing a, a curse upon those who twist and corrupt the gospel in verses 6 to 10, in verse 11, Paul now says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Paul's message, his good news, which is what gospel means, did not originate in man. This is really what we find throughout the scriptures. All of the scriptures find their origin not this is what the Bible claims for itself. It is not just man's attempt to try to understand God or try to reason their way to God, but rather it is God's revelation of himself to mankind. And the gospel is God's message to mankind, not ultimately man. So if you remember last week, uh, we did uh, appeal to 2 Corinthians 5.20. We read that where Paul tells us how he understood the task of gospel pro proclamation, of gospel preachers. 
as being ambassadors for Christ. We are ambassadors for him. Ambassadors do not make their own message up. They, they represent somebody else. And that's what we are when we proclaim Christ to other people, when we proclaim the Gospels. We stand there as God's ambassadors, as God's messages. Paul says God's making his appeal through us. God is the one in the Gospel message that, that reveals to man there is forgiveness of sins in the Lord Jesus Christ, and God calls all men everywhere to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's message is not a man-made invention. That's why he's standing here, and he's going to die on this hill, and he pronounces a curse upon anyone else, including himself or an angel from heaven, who would alter this message, because it is God's message, and we need to make sure we get this correct. Nothing else matters, ultimately, if we don't. And so Paul's authority does not ultimately rest in men. The ultimate authority in this matter is God himself. And he adds in verse 12, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. In Paul's case, it was indeed true that he didn't come up through the Jerusalem church and then get sent out by them. Uh, he admits this. In some ways, he's conceding the point to the Judaizers. Correct. Uh, I, I didn't come here through Jerusalem or from Jerusalem. They, did, they didn't send me here. But this is not an embarrassment to him because he gained his information by revelation, by a direct revealing of divine truth from Jesus Christ himself. That's what his claim is. It was a revelation about Jesus Christ and it was a revelation given to him by Jesus Christ, who we know appeared to him on the Damascus Road. You can read that in Acts chapter 9. Paul will also say in verses 15 and 16 here that the Father was pleased to reveal his Son, the Lord Jesus, to Paul. It was a revelation from God of Jesus Christ. So what Paul is doing here as he is making these claims, as he is talking about this, is he is going to the authority. He's appealing to, the, to an authority that is higher than Jerusalem, higher than even the other apostles, higher even than the angels in heaven, higher ultimately even than himself, which is why he said last time, even if he corrupts the message, may I be eternally con condemned, accursed. It is God's message from God. And of course, in the unique case of Paul, it came by direct revelation from the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Paul goes on, beginning in verse, uh, in verse 13 to 15, he starts to recount his former life in Judaism prior to believing in Christ. And we'll come back to those verses in a moment. But then in the middle of verse 16, it says that when Christ had been revealed to him, he did not immediately consult with anyone. In Greek, that says that I did not consult with flesh and blood, which is likely Paul's way of contrasting the mortality and, and, and weakness of men with the glory and the greatness of God. His gospel and his commission, his mission is not from mere flesh and blood that can err, 
But rather, his mission and message is from God Almighty, who is neither flesh nor blood. So you go ahead, Judaizers, and boast of your connection to Jerusalem, but my commission actually comes very directly from God himself through the Lord Jesus Christ who appeared to me. He adds that he didn't go into Jerusalem, but he says, I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now, if you've ever tried to put together a timeline for Paul's life, you would know that it's a little bit tricky, particularly in this uh, time that he's talking about here, in this part of his, of his life. Uh, in the book of Acts, Luke, of course, is writing Acts. Some of the things that are mentioned here in Galatians, um, Luke doesn't give us in Acts. Uh, for example, there is no trip to Arabia that we're told of. Uh, in, in Acts. And of course, that is not a reason for us to be troubled. Uh, the, the authors of the New Testament, as they are inspired and carried along by the Holy Spirit, they give information that is pertinent to their audience at the time, and they don't always say everything there is to say about a particular topic. And so Luke uh, passes very quickly over some of these years of Paul's life. But when it comes to uh, Galatians and what's going on here, some of these details Paul obviously found important to relate to the Galatian church about where he went and and when he went to different places. Uh, This all works together in in helping his argument out to show that he he didn't come uh, to them directly from Jerusalem, um, but rather got his gospel message from Christ. And we'll see in a moment that, that it was affirmed by those in Jerusalem. It was the same message. Um, but so there, there's some difficulty in, in, in piecing it all together. Um, but, but most seem to agree here that when Paul says he went into Arabia, that he is referring to a re- the region of the Nabataean kingdom, just to the south and to the east of Damascus. And many argue that while Paul was there, what was he doing there in, you know, for these, these three years What is he doing in Arabia? Many would argue he was just fulfilling his mission. He was going to Gentiles and he was proclaiming the gospel to them. We know that after he returned to Damascus from his time in Arabia, the king of the Nabataeans, a man named King Eratos, was the reason that he had to flee Damascus in a basket. So that event is recounted in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 32 and 33. And it is likely the same event that we find in Acts chapter 9 when Paul had to uh, flee because of a plot against him. Uh, It's probably the same plot that was tied to this uh, King Eratos who wanted Paul uh, to be seized. So we wonder, why did Eratos want Paul seized? Uh, Why this plot against him? Well, it would make sense if Paul was indeed preaching the gospel when he was in the Nabataean kingdom. Because we know that wherever Paul went and preached the gospel, he quite often was persecuted by some. And in some cases, those persecutors would pursue him from one town to another. We, if you remember back in Acts 13 and 14, when we began this series in Galatians, when Paul was in Galatia, that very thing happened. He was pursued through various towns until they finally caught up with him and stoned him and left him for dead. And so likely Paul had been preaching, he'd been involved in gospel ministry, and he left and went back to Damascus. And even though that was not directly under Eratos' authority, he had influence there, and he was after Paul there, and Paul was forced to flee. 
Others, however, argue that Paul's time in Arabia is likely also where he received fuller revelation of the gospel from the Lord Jesus. We are not told a lot about what Jesus, the Lord Jesus, said to Paul when he was on the road to Damascus. We know the Lord Jesus appeared to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Uh, But we're not told of much else that the Lord says to Paul on that instant. And yet Paul's clearly saying here that he received revelation about the Lord. His understanding of the gospel comes very directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so some people conclude uh, that while he was in Arabia, there was more instruction directly from the Lord. And so it's possible here in chapter 1 that Paul is contrasting going to Jerusalem, that is to learn from the apostles. He says when he uh, received his initial revelation, he didn't go immediately to Jerusalem, rather to Arabia, possibly where he learned more from Christ himself, rather than going to the apostles in Jerusalem to learn directly from them. That is, I think, very possible. I think it's hard to prove that and be absolutely certain, but it's certainly that I would just say that is Possible that, G, that Paul did receive further revelation while in Arabia. Regardless, though, his gospel came to him clearly by way of revelation ultimately from God. And so in this question of authority, Paul is appealing here first and foremost to God himself. So the implication for us is that we must likewise go to God as the ultimate authority for, how, for, for all things, and namely and particularly how we understand the gospel. Of course, we want to be quick to acknowledge that there is much uniqueness to Paul's situation. He was one of very few who held the office of apostle, not an office that continues. The apostles did not appoint other apostles as they were dying out. Rather, they appointed elders in the churches, Apostles were a unique gift that Christ gave to his church who helped to lay the foundation of the church with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. That's what Ephesians 2.20 tells us. And we see a unique power and authority given to these apostles in their office of apostleship. So Paul did indeed receive this direct revelation from God, but direct revelation from God is not normative for believers that is we are not it's not the normal experience for christians nowhere are we even taught in the new testament to go seek after this kind of experience paul himself was not looking uh, to interpret feelings or whatever as being from christ he is going to persecute christ's people when all of a sudden christ just out of nowhere unmistakably he didn't need a class on how to, you know, try to to discern the voice of God in wherever he was. Christ just showed up to him, and, and, and it was very obvious. So the apostles are, of course, unique. They are a gift to the church. And their revelation that they received, that Jesus said the Spirit even, even confirmed to them and, and taught them as their helper, this has been passed down to the church and preserved In the word of God, the scriptures. And so this is our ultimate authority. Again, even in Galatians, of course, 
Paul doesn't send the Galatians off to try to seek their own direct revelation. He is reminding them here of his unique authority as an apostle and his unique authority even beyond that as one who is simply relaying a message that comes directly from God. The authority that Paul possessed as an apostle of Jesus Christ was above the Judaizers And it was certainly not any less than any of the other apostles like Peter or others who were in Jerusalem who walked with the Lord during his earthly ministry. And again, mentioned this back when we were in verse 1 talking about these same things about authority. And this coming ultimately ultimately from God and very directly from God uh, to Paul. Paul's going to go on to explain, and we'll see this, I think it's implied in our text, we'll see in a moment, and and it's it's stated more explicitly in chapter 2, that the Jerusalem church and the apostles actually did heartily affirm Paul's gospel and his ministry as being legitimate. So Paul's gospel wasn't actually different than Jerusalem's in the end after all. They were preaching the same gospel, namely God's gospel. So the Judaizers here are wrong all over the place, right? They're disparaging Paul's authority, though he has more authority than them, though he received this message directly from God. And while maybe some might, you you might be skeptical, I think we'd be right to, to wonder if someone claims a direct authority to God. And yet that's not Paul's only argument. He will say that the other apostles in the Jerusalem church preached the same message as him. And moreover, as we'll see beginning in chapter 3 particularly, he will also make his case for justification by faith alone based on the Old Testament scriptures as well. So the revelation that Paul received as an apostle was the same that the other apostles received. They were proclaiming the same message And it was in full accord with the Old Testament scriptures that had been handed down to them. And so all of these streams merge together to form Paul's answer to this question of authority and the legitimacy of his gospel. And he rightly begins by appealing to God, the highest authority in all of this. It is remarkable how this played out very similarly during the time of the Protestant Reformation. In Galatia, the dispute was about the gospel, but the question of authority was also a big part of it and was behind it. And during the Protestant Reformation, the, what is often called the material principle or cause of the Reformation, that is, uh, that is what the Reformation was about, the material, the stuff that made up the Reformation, what was the major beef, what was the major difference and concern? Well, it was about justification by faith alone. That is, it was a dispute about the gospel. What is the gospel? What is the good good news? That was the main material of the Reformation, but behind that stood the formal principle or the formal cause. That is the question of authority. Who decides this? How do we know? How do we settle this debate and this matter? Do we simply listen to and receive what the scripture, or sorry, what the, what the church says with its councils and its popes? Is the church's tradition on par with scripture? 
so that we need to have all of those popes and councils interpret the scripture to us and we hold them up just as high as the scriptures themselves. Martin Luther eventually concluded that this can't be the case because, among other things, popes and councils have often contradicted each other. So clearly they're not infallible. They're not on the same level at all as the scriptures. And so Protestants countered that scripture alone is our final authority for settling such matters because it is God's inspired and infallible word that has been reliably preserved to us today. And again, they were not, just as Paul will say, and by the way, my gospel is the same as Peter preached and other apostles. The same during the time of the Reformation. They did not disparage church history or throw out everything that had come before them. But all of it was to be filtered through the scriptures. The scriptures were the final authority. And if man errs, if, if they're wrong and scripture corrects them, then we toss out what that man has said on that issue. And, and, and scripture is the final authority for this. This whole matter and issue of authority never really goes away. So many of our disputes today in the broader Christian world, if you will, come down to this question of authority. How are we going to decide? Will we seek to submit ourselves to God's word? Or will we be led by culture or other influences This is important in any conflict we might have, any matter of doctrine, for example, and most certainly when it comes to any debate about what the gospel is and how it is that a sinful man might be reconciled with holy God. Of course, as I've said, Paul was not a rogue. He was not off on his own. He was not simply him in his direct revelation, throwing out everything else and avoiding everybody else altogether. He was not preaching something that was out of step with the gospel proclaimed by the other apostles. But at the end of the day, the ultimate and final authority is not from man. And Paul will demonstrate this even later in chapter 2 when he talks about a dispute that arose between him and Peter. He loved Peter. They were on the same team. They were on the same Wavelength, preaching the same gospel, but Peter erred and he stepped out of line. And because Paul had God's authority ultimately in mind, he corrected and rebuked Peter as necessary. So again, even where we appreciate church history and our Christian heritage, wherever it might be proven wrong by the scriptures, scripture wins. Because it is our ultimate and final sole authority in the end, final authority for settling matters of faith and practice. So the ultimate authority in determining the gospel is God himself. And we find this in his word. And as Paul delivers his defense and explanation of how he came to receive the gospel, we also see the power of God in his gospel the power of God's gospel to save. So after saying that his gospel was from Christ, 
In verse 13, Paul then recounts his former life prior to receiving that revelation. He says in verse 13, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Here was a man who had been so anti-Christ that he made it his mission to persecute and destroy Christ's church. And he sought to do this, he says, violently here, or to an extraordinary degree, probably a reference to, to, to doing this violently. He sought to destroy it. He was there, um, if you remember Stephen, when Stephen was martyred, they were laying their cloaks, those who threw stones, at the feet of Saul, and he was looking on with approval. And he was on his way to Damascus in order to try to arrest Christians there. He, he was above and beyond others in his efforts to try to purge Israel from this scourge, these Christians, these Christ followers. You'd be hard-pressed to find another person who was so opposed to the church than Paul in his former life. And disturbingly enough, he did not do this in service to some pagan religion. This was all part of Paul's misplaced zeal for the one true God. He thought he was doing this in service to the God of Abraham. That's how he understood what he was doing. And so he was doing it with all his might. He was ahead of others his own age, he said. He was on the path to greater notoriety within Judaism, being extremely zealous, he says. For the traditions of his fathers, likely a reference to the extra-biblical tradition of the elders. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he says in Philippians 3. And we saw, if you recall, in Philippians 3, that when it came to an external conformity to Israel's ceremonial law and to these extra traditions they had, Paul was quite blameless. You would not find him on the Sabbath lifting a finger. He was externally blameless in keeping these things. He was rigid and meticulous about it. Also, I think interestingly, if we think about anyone who was qualified to see the shortcomings of the law in efforts to be righteous by the law, it was this man, the perfect man to now confront the Judaizers who are pointing people back to law-keeping as a means of salvation. Paul was zealous. He used violence to try to enforce his understanding of covenant faithfulness. He viewed himself, one commentator says, no doubt, as a, a Phineas-like figure. If you remember the story of Phineas in Numbers chapter 25, there the people of Israel had descended into Baal worship, and they were with these pagan women. They were doing precisely what they'd been warned about over and over. Uh, we've been seeing that in Deuteronomy. Uh, don't marry them. You will end up worshiping their gods very quickly. Uh, that, that happened in Israel's history. And even as God sent a plague, and even as he had said they were to put a number of these men to death, and even as they were mourning at the tent of meeting, and Moses there, in the sight of all of them, this Israelite man takes a Midianite woman, just blatant and brazen 
disobedience and disrespect. And Phineas was a, a priest who grabbed a spear and went and ran them both through. It's a, it's a shocking and stunning story. And what's maybe more stunning is God commends him for having done it. And, and it actually ends the plague. It's not the norm. But God had commanded to put an end to this practice. And in the old covenant to put these men to death who were doing this. And here is a man, even after the plague had come, just so brazenly committing this sin. And he was to be put to death. And yet how many have seized upon this kind of a principle and assume that this kind of a zeal is always what God requires of us. This is the kind of thing that Paul had been doing. He was extreme in his zeal. I'm a Phineas-like character. I'm going to run these Christians through. I'm going to get rid of them. Purify Israel in this way. However, it was completely and utterly misguided. Tragically so for those he put to death. But he continues. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Paul's former way of life of seeking the church's destruction was very suddenly and very abruptly interrupted. And he doesn't just casually say this, but when God saved me, this and that happened. He has this kind of descriptive sentence, even as he describes who God is. God is described as he who had set me apart before I was born. Or from my mother's womb. He uses language that is reminiscent of Jeremiah's calling. Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5. Paul asserts here the sovereign election of God to choose Paul. To save Paul and to commission him as an apostle. What, was, what, did, what did Paul do here in his life to, to earn this? What of his law keeping unlocked the key to this all? None of it. Think of Philippians 3 again. He counted it all as garbage, as rubbish compared to knowing Christ. It was God who set me apart from before I was born by his grace. There is nothing good in Paul. There is nothing he could have done to reverse all of this. He was an enemy of God through and through. The one who set him apart, Paul says, was pleased to reveal his son to me. Quite literally, Paul saw Christ, had the Son of God revealed to him in blinding light. But not only physically, he had the hardness of his heart removed and he saw with spiritual eyes and he believed in the Son of God. Remember when he ended up with Ananias and something like scales fell from his eyes, it says, after Ananias prayed for him. It's impossible not to... I think literally something fell from his eyes like scales. I think that's what it says there. But it's also impossible not to see the symbolism of what's going on there. These 
physical scales fall, and Paul also physically, the scales of his heart have fallen away as well, and he now believes with spiritual eyes. He sees the truth, and he believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this calling for Paul, when God was pleased to reveal his son to Paul, was not only to his personal salvation, but he was also called and commissioned by God to be an apostle, to preach Christ among the Gentiles, he says here. This was such a drastic and shocking turn of events. Ask yourself, what kind of power was at work here? He continues in verse 18, he says, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. He's bringing God in his witness here. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. So Paul says eventually he did go up to Jerusalem and he quietly met with Peter and then with James, but he didn't see any of the other apostles. It is implied here that there was no dispute with Peter and with James. Evidently they agreed with him. They were on the same page. We'll see that more again next week in chapter 2. And as Paul returned to Syria and Cilicia, he adds this in verse 22. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. I would, I would guess so. At this point in Paul's life, as he's recounting his, his history at this point, the churches throughout Judea still didn't know him personally, face to face. But word about what had happened had indeed spread to these churches. The man who formerly persecuted them now preached the very message, the very faith that he once sought to destroy. That is the kind of message that will make the rounds. And so rightfully, they glorified God, as Paul says, because of me. What he means by that is because of what God did did to me, because of what he did for me, what he did in me. We have a very clear example here of the power of God that comes with the gospel, through the gospel. It is the good news of Jesus Christ that is the power of God, by which God Almighty takes the sinner's heart of stone and melts it down, replacing it with the heart of flesh. He takes the Jesus hater and makes him a willing slave of Christ. For Paul, there was a dramatic break with his former life in Judaism. The Judaism of Paul's day was not in keeping with the heart of the Old Testament. If it had been, the Jews would never have crucified the Messiah. Paul and others would never have persecuted his people. And so this for Paul on the Damascus Road was indeed a conversion to the true faith of Abraham. Paul no longer was just a physical blood descendant of Abraham, 
but he now shared in Abraham's faith. This is something he will say explicitly at the very end of chapter 3, which we'll get to. Again, as Paul recounts what happened to him here, there is much in this that is obviously unique to Paul. The gospel, again, came to him by direct revelation. He was called immediately by the risen Christ himself, appearing to him in glory, gloriously. He was not called through another human representative. Moreover, he was given a unique, as we've said, ministry as an apostle. He was given this and called to this right upon his initial conversion. His conversion took him very suddenly and momentously from one extreme persecutor to the other persecuted apostle. There's much that's unique about Paul in this, but there is also much here that is paradigmatic for all who turn to Christ. That is, that is true of everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. The same power that was at work in Paul is at work whenever sinners respond in saving faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for because it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the, to the Greek. And again, as we read in 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16, Paul there reveals that what's, what happened to him is an example to the rest of us. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost sinner, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. He is saying very explicitly, he's an example to all, that the most horrific of sinners can indeed be saved upon faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, if God can save me, the foremost of sinners, just look at my track record, look at the road that I was upon, if he can do this for me, it's an example that God will save the worst human beings out there. And how does he do this? It comes through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation. And so we really don't have reason to be in despair even when we see the world going nuts all around us because we have the gospel given to us in Scripture, preserved for us here, and it is the power of God to salvation for even the worst of sinners. And so we see a lot of bad sinners all around us, things going very badly, getting worse and worse. Whatever are we going to do? We have the gospel given to us. We have the great commission to go make disciples. How would they ever believe we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to sinners? All who savingly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ receive this power of God. It's not always outwardly as extreme of a shift as we see in the Apostle Paul. But even so, where regeneration occurs in the heart, where that stony heart, we're all born in sin. When a person believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and has that heart made new within, to which they would now long for the things of the Lord, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are no less a recipient of God's 
saving power and grace than Paul was. Further, as Paul recounts his own conversion here, the doctrine of election is not just true of Paul. When a person believes in Christ, it is indeed God who has set that person apart from before the foundation of the world. That's what Ephesians 1 and 4 tells us. And in God's timing, he calls that sinner with an inward call that cannot be denied. God the Spirit changes hearts through the work of regeneration such that the lights come on for sinners and they now gladly and joyfully, willingly come to Christ. They believe in him. This is a calling that is in God's grace to all who believe, as it was for Paul. Further, Paul tells us of his ministry he was set apart for by Christ. Not every believer has the same giftings. Not every believer has the exact same ministry. But all believers are called as servants of Christ Jesus. We are called to serve him wherever we are and with whatever gifts that we have been given. Not all are apostles, but all have some gifting from Christ. Ephesians 4 tells us that. Again, this converting and saving power is not unique to Paul, though it was certainly incredibly displayed in him. It is an example to all of us of what God can do and does for sinners. And so if the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, what happens when that gospel is corrupted and it becomes no gospel at all? What goes with it? The power of God unto salvation. The means by which God draws sinners to himself. But on the other hand, where the gospel is indeed proclaimed, there is much reason to be hopeful. The mere fact that Christ has not returned yet is evidence that he has more people yet to draw into himself. And this gospel is the means by which God does that. And so we continue to go into the world seeking to make disciples. Let us be renewed in this. Let us be encouraged. Let us be unashamed to do this. Let us be bold and of good courage. And we know that for the Apostle Paul, he's, when he even says in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the power of God and the salvation for those who believe, it didn't mean that every single person he preached to believed it. Obviously, we have seen that he was persecuted regularly, very consistently. We too have been promised that we will receive some measure of persecution if we want to live godly lives in Christ Jesus. We saw that in the Sermon on the Mount, suffering for righteousness' sake, being reviled on account of Christ, is part of what it is to be a Christian. We don't know for sure how it will be received, who would believe and who would not. But we leave that in the hands of the Lord. 
And we are reminded that no other people, there's no other group in the world other than Christians who possess this saving message that is the power of God unto salvation. Again, the gospel is God's word to man. It is his message. God the Father has lovingly sent his Son into the world to save sinners. The eternal Son joyfully took upon himself flesh. And he offered his own flesh, his own self, for the sins of all the Father gave to him. He did this by dying on the cross in the place of those sinners. Their sins were heaped upon him, and he took the punishment for his people upon himself as God's wrath was poured out upon the Son, and he died in the place of sinners. It is the wrath that sinners deserve for our sins, which are violations of Almighty God's laws. And Jesus died in the place of sinners, but he did not stay dead. He was buried, but he was raised again on the third day in victory over the grave. And he went on to then ascend to the right hand of the Father, where he intercedes for his own until the time in which he will return and all of his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. And now God, through the proclamation of Christ Jesus, calls all men everywhere to repent of their sins and to believe in the Son, to look to him in faith to be forgiven. And the promise is that all who do look upon Jesus in faith will be graciously pardoned by God and reconciled to him. In some ways, it would make a lot more sense if God would just do all proclamation of the gospel as he did with Paul, just through the risen Jesus to show up. But part of God's plan is to use the folly of preaching this message to sinners. 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 reveals this. He has given this treasure in jars of clay, brittle, earthen, weak vessels. We don't often feel like very much. And yet God has chosen this way to save sinners, to sovereignly and graciously call sinners out of darkness and into his glorious light. All who have ever been saved All who have received the gracious work of God have experienced this power of God. And as the church in Judea glorified God for his mighty work in the Apostle Paul, so too we are to glorify God for saving all those he saves, beginning with and rejoicing in the God of our own salvation. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercies. We thank you for saving sinners. We have no hope besides 
your gracious kindness to save all who trust in Christ Jesus. I pray that every person here would rest their hope fully and firmly in Jesus, the Son of God, who died and rose again to reconcile sinners to you. Father, we thank you so much that you have given us your word and not left us in darkness. So we praise you, we give you thanks, encourage your people, give us strength, give us faith, give us courage as we need it. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.